And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. did our book sermon last week. I remind you that there are um, outlines on the back table of 2 Thessalonians as we step into the new epistle together. Title of the message, A Great Testimony. It's not uncommon at Legacy Baptist Church to use the word testimony as a reference to the reputation, we might say, of individuals, families, or even of the church itself among those with whom we interact. By definition, the word testimony simply means a declaration or an affirmation concerning something that one has witnessed, something that one has experienced that he is now declaring or affirming in the ears of others. So in its most basic sense, when we speak of those things which comprise our testimony, we are speaking of the words and of the actions that bear witness to our deeply held understanding of Jesus Christ, that He is God, that He came in flesh, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He rose again the third day in victory over the grave and redeems anyone and everyone who calls upon His name from the penalty and from the power of sin. So that's what it means when we talk in the the church sense about being a testimony. And that's clear enough. The deeper question though, is always, how's it done? It's one thing to say we need to be a good testimony. But how do we be a good testimony? Is there some proper way to be a good testimony? Some trick? How have others done it in the past? What's most effective? All throughout the New Testament, we see examples of men and women and how they went about being a testimony of Jesus Christ. John pointed to Jesus as he was baptizing in the River Jordan and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Peter looked at Jesus and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nathan bowed down before Jesus and said, My Lord and my King. Mary anointed him with oil and washed his feet with her tears. Nicodemus helped bury him with Joseph of Arimathea in his tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea provided the grave. The apostles preached in the streets. Everyone who believed was publicly baptized in the book of Acts. Each of these was an act compelled by the desire to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of these would affirm that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Son of God. And today we turn our attention toward ourselves, toward our family, toward our church. What about our testimony? How does our testimony work its way out practically in this life. What is our testimony comprised of? And are there any keys to ensuring that we have a strong testimony among the world? Are there things that we are doing or not doing which greatly affect our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, either for better or for worse? And does any of it really matter? 
we'll try to answer some of those questions this evening as we explore Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 this evening. And let's read all four verses together. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. We open to almost the exact same greeting that initiated the first epistle to the Thessalonians. The letter is addressed from Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus, from Silvanus, also known as Silas, and from Timotheus, who is from time to time called Timothy. Now, because we covered much of this material in 1 Thessalonians, I'm not going to dig as deep into the history of the Thessalonian church, but uh, it is a new series, and, and so it would behoove us to remember a little bit about the Thessalonian church and why things were the way they were, the backdrop for Paul's writing to this church. The church of the Thessalonians was in the city of Thessalonica, which was in the region of Macedonia. If you were to look at a map, if you were to, to turn in the back of your Bible or, or some other time look at a map, you would find that the region of Macedonia is um, north of what we might say Greece proper. Um, it would be a fairly large region and we know that Thessalonica and Philippi were two of the larger cities in that region of Macedonia. Paul, Silas, and Timothy first ventured to the city on record in Acts 17, having received a commission by God to go into Macedonia, what we typically call the Macedonian call. And they were called there to preach the gospel. Recall Paul wanted to go into Asia, which would have been the area of like Ephesus and Laodicea and such, but the Spirit of God hindered him, said not to go there, and then he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come here, we need the gospel. Thessalonica was the fourth stop in their journey through Macedonia, having first traveled to Neapolis, then to Philippi, then to Amphipolis, and then finally to Thessalonica. As we mentioned, the only city, notable city, prior to Thessalonica was Philippi. We read about the, their time in Philippi in Acts 16. Uh, they were preaching there and things were going fairly well. Uh, you recall Lydia being the first convert, these sorts of things. And then uh, Paul was wearied by a demonically possessed woman who was following them, perhaps you remember. And so he cast the demon out of this woman and that made the people who she was their slave very angry because they had made a lot of money off of her. And so the people stirred up the city and they ended up throwing Paul and Silas into prison where we find what we now call the account of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are singing at midnight and all of a sudden there's a great earthquake and the chains fall off and um, the Philippian jailer is ready to kill himself and Paul and Silas say, no, don't, we're all here. And then the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And he is saved and his house is saved. So there were some great victories in Philippi. And we know when we read the 
epistle of Paul to the Philippians that the Philippian church was deeply helpful to Paul throughout his ministry, sending once and again to his needs, uh, sending him money in the places where he went, sending it to Thessalonica, sending it uh, when he was in, in most need and continually providing for him monetarily. Now, the next notable stop was Thessalonica. Unlike in Philippi, where the Greeks were the problem, in Thessalonica, the Jews were the problem. They were deeply hostile to Paul and Silas and Timothy, deeply hostile against their message of the Messiah. So hostile, in fact, that Paul was forced to leave the city much earlier than he would have wanted. And that is, if you recall from our book sermon last week, that was the tone of 1 Thessalonians. The tone of 1 Thessalonians was concern because Paul had not had enough time. He didn't feel he'd had enough time to train them up properly. And he was concerned that he had thrown them to the wolves. You know, sometimes uh, in Christian circles, we get so excited about um, people getting saved that we forget that that's the beginning, not the end. And we, we fail to disciple them because we think, well, we got, they're, they're saved now. We, we've got them this far. And, and then we find that uh, some time later, they've wandered in a wrong direction. They've wandered in a wrong direction because though they were saved, they were not discipled. And if you don't disciple a believer, then they could very easily still miss the mark as far as becoming a proper follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was afraid here that he had to leave so early that the Thessalonians, in the midst of a great deal of persecution that they were under, the same persecution that made Paul have to leave Thessalonica, that under this great persecution, they would fail in their faith, that they would renounce, that they would um, walk away, that the, the church would collapse. And as Paul addresses this church, he again specifies that the ones he is writing unto are those who are, as the second half of verse 1 says, in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We always make a distinction, and it's important to do so, between the concept of a church as the people in a building and a church as a subset of those people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We meet together in a local church and we call the church the assembling of the believers and, and that's the purpose for which we meet is to, for we as believers to assemble. But it's not uncommon for us, uh, even in our church, to have what we might call a mixed multitude, to have unbelievers and believers sitting down together and hearing the Word of God and, and um, singing together and those sorts of things. And yet we recognize that even in the local church setting, the only ones that are truly a part of Christ's church are those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Unbelievers always have been, and indeed still are, accepted in the assembly of the New Testament church. But the church is not for them. In like manner, Paul was writing to a believing audience. And while there is a high possibility that some who would hear this epistle were, in fact, unbelievers, Paul is making it clear that his instruction, that as he writes this, it is to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing to those who are in Christ. This epistle, as all epistles, are written with the intent that it would be toward believers. Paul then confers upon them the standard greeting, one that we see quite regularly in his epistles. 
Verse 2, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not but two Sundays ago that we considered why Paul would give such a greeting when we were considering his closing remarks in the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. Certainly, in part, there would have been some degree of formality to it. As believers, this was uh, what we might call a formal greeting, a greeting of grace and a greeting of peace. But it seems very likely that Paul also wanted to establish the context within which his words ought to be read. In every epistle, we find Paul urging the believers on to greater faith and greater obedience, onto a greater testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Compulsion unto action, even among sound believers, can always become, uh, the waters of compulsion can become muddied if we aren't careful as believers. The believer that is compelled to do anything can be consumed so much by this doing that the motivation for it can be lost. And they can easily fall into the trap of doing because they think that it will somehow afford them special favor with God. Doing for the sake of doing. And oftentimes in our context, we call this legalism. Legalism leads believers to a works-centered mode of living rather than a heart-centered mode of living. And oftentimes this works-centered mode of living ends up being motivated by guilt. You go to church because if you don't, you feel guilty. You read your Bible because if you don't, you feel guilty. So you appease your guilt by doing these things, and as long as you've done these things, you feel okay. Now, the problem with this manner of living is that God has not called us to live a life motivated by guilt. And there's a difference between guilt and conviction. If we're living an unrepentant sin against God or if we're not doing something that we know we ought to do, knowing that whatsoever is not a faith is sin, then we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We might call it guilt, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit is the means by which the Spirit informs us that we have done something wrong and lays upon our heart the necessity of repenting of that wrong and getting it right with Christ. But conviction... Uh, is, is not the same as guilt, which guilt would be feeling the intense weight of our actions negatively or positively upon us to where we are thus compelled to act based upon the weight of these, these actions or inactions. Conviction or guilt should not be the compelling factor that moves us to Christ. Conviction should comprise only really a small element of our lives, uh, it should only be around long enough for us to recognize that we did wrong, to repent of our wrong, and to get right back into fellowship with God. And once fellowship is restored following our sin, our motivation for living should rest right here in verse 2. With grace and peace. We are motivated by the grace of God unto holy living. We are motivated by the grace of God to assemble as believers. We are compelled by the grace of God into meaningful and genuine worship. We live a life enveloped in the grace of God. Our interactions with others ought to reflect the grace of God. Our actions ought to be an extension of the grace of God. There's a peace that is given by God on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as well. God accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and in doing so, He made the provision for peace 
between you and God. And the day you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were accepting that provision and literally stepping into a relationship of peace with God. (coughs) Peace in your heart from the condemnation of sin. Peace in your heart from the fear of punishment. Peace in your heart with your fellow man as you learn from Jesus' example of what it means to love and what it means to forgive. And so your life ought to literally, as a believer, be consumed not with fear and guilt, though we ought to fear God and that we will feel, feel conviction, but our life is consumed with the realities of grace and peace. Say, well, pastor, what does any of this have to do with testimony? Well, we're still working through the text here, but let's talk about it in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, we're going to see this evening um, a couple of, of different points. We're going to interweave, for the most part, our application with our teaching tonight, although we will have kind of a pointed uh, process at the end of drawing it all together. Considering each point along with the teaching rather than bunching the application at the end. And as Paul speaks to the church in Thessalonica, we find, similar to the first epistle to them, that he has glowing words to say concerning their testimony. He is not happy that they had to go through all of the pain and suffering that compelled them to get a good testimony. But he is thrilled with how they responded to the pain and suffering that their actions and faith have become what we might call the gold standard for other churches to follow. And today we're going to talk about how this happens. How our testimony among the world as a church and as individuals, and even not just among the world, but our testimony among other churches, becomes something more how it becomes a great testimony and what some of the results of a great testimony can be. In verse 3, we're going to consider the source of the believer's testimony. In verse 4, the results of a believer's great testimony. So in verse 3, we read this. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly and charity and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Paul's statement here is somewhat interesting when considered in light of the original languages. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you. And you see there that the Greek word translated bound in our King James Bibles is the word that means to owe or ought. Uh, Literally, the idea of obligation or of duty And here Paul uses this word to state that he and Silvanus and Timotheus felt a literal duty, a constraint to be in a state of constant thanksgiving to God. That what they had seen in the church of Thessalonica as the church had um, grown in their faith and exhibited their faith, what they had seen in the church and the reputation, the testimony that the church has was so good among unbeliever and believer alike that they literally felt a deep obligation to thank God for what they're seeing. Now, it's always good and always important, always a duty of ministers to pray for their people. And Paul regularly felt the duty to pray for those with whom he interacted, to pray for these churches, to pray 
for the people that he ministered to. But here, he's not just saying, I felt a duty to pray, or we felt a duty to pray. He's saying, we felt the duty to thank God for what we've seen. This is an incredible blessing to see you walking in the faith, to see your faith growing exceedingly, to see the love that you have one toward another. And Paul says that this feeling, this duty, this binding, this obligation, he says it's meat. Literally that word meat meaning suitable, proper, deserving. It's proper. It's deserving. It's suitable to thank God because what we see in you is nothing less than the greatness of God. It's nothing less than a blessing from the Lord Himself. If we were saying it in today's vernacular, we might say it this way, that if Paul and his companions did not offer thanksgiving to God for what they saw, for the testimony that was turned out in the Thessalonian church, uh, it would be just wrong. Might, might be how we'd say it. It would, it would almost seem wrong for them not to be on their knees constantly giving thanks for what the Thessalonians were exhibiting as far as their faith was concerned. Now, the second half of this verse tells us specifically what it was about the Thessalonians' actions and testimony that compelled such deep thanksgiving. He says, first, their faith grows exceedingly, and second, their charity abounds. Let's consider these in turn. You're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which is one of the marquee scriptures in our Bible on faith. And it defines faith this way. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Literally, that our faith is the embodiment of our beliefs. That our faith is the conviction of that which we cannot see with our eyes. Faith is the outworking of the innermost convictions of our heart. What we truly believe is that which will work itself out in what we do. And what we do based upon what we believe, is our faith. May I say that again? What we truly believe is that which will work itself out in what we do. And what we do, based upon what we truly believe, that is our faith. Faith is what we might say, we might define it as uh, belief in action. Faith is the outworking of our convictions. Faith is the outworking of our understanding. Faith is the outworking of our belief. This is faith. One of the other passages, however, that greatly defines the concept of faith is James chapter 2. And in verse 14 of James chapter 2, James writes this, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? James asks a question here. What profit is a man who says he has faith but he's not doing anything that's in line with that claim. That what he says with his mouth about his faith is not in line with his actions. Now, we've already defined faith as belief in action, which means if you're not doing it, it doesn't matter if you're saying it, it's not faith. You can call it belief. You can call it conviction. You can say it's what you think. You can say it's what you know, but if you're not doing it, then it's not faith. Because faith is an action. It's the outworking of our belief. And so James says, can faith 
save him. Now, this was perhaps one of those greatly debated passages. I've heard it preached many different ways. But it's one of these places where the Greek behind the English translation is very, very helpful. The Greek construction of this question, can faith save him, is written in such a way that the question actually answers itself. Now, we do this in the English language as well. I can ask a question in such a way that it reveals the answer that I expect, right? If uh, I'm getting out of the room, I come out of the room on a Sunday morning and I'm dressed for church and my wife looks at me and says, are you really going to wear that to church? She has just betrayed the answer that she is expecting by the way she asked the question. She asked the question in a manner to say, you know, I don't think you should wear that to church. I'm hoping that your answer is, no, honey, I'm going to go back in the room and I'm going to change into something else. And so the way she asks the question betrays the answer that she's looking for. And so we do this in English and it, 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 it works out that way in the Greek as well. And the Greek formation of this phrase is unquestionably expecting the answer to this question to be no. So James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? And the answer to that question, according to the Greek construction, is no. No. Well, this kind of throws a wrench in things, doesn't it? It kind of throws a wrench in our whole saved by faith alone, no works, if James is saying that faith without works can't save him. Pastor, what's going on here? Well, one day we'll deeply exposit this and it will become more clear. But James is not speaking of any faith. James is speaking of this kind of faith. The kind of faith where a guy says, yes, I believe all of these things, but it doesn't ever actually touch his life, then it wasn't real faith to begin with. So yes, we are saved by faith alone. There's no question that we are saved by faith alone. But not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom on that day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name do many works and cast out demons and he'll look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. There are many people who claim to believe what the Bible says, but they have never put their faith in what the Bible says. They claim that they agree with the Bible, but their lives deny it. And James says, if your life, if every aspect of your life denies your claims of faith, that faith is dead. Because faith is belief in action. Faith that's not backed up by some evidence of that faith in our lives is no faith at all. And then James gives an example here. He says in verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Now James is speaking to believers here. So he's not telling them, this is, he's not even preaching inherently in James chapter 2 on saving faith. Although um, saving faith is just another standard of the, um, it's another application of the same standard. But he's speaking here about faith 
as pertaining to your Christian life. And so he says, if you say that you are walking by faith in God's Word and you, you believe God's Word and, and you say, yes, I have faith that God can provide for my needs financially. I have faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, and then you see a brother in need. He has no clothing. He doesn't have the, the food that he needs to live. And you look at that man and you say, brother, depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. I pray that you would get clothes and I pray that you would get food, brother. Now have a wonderful day. And you watch him walk away naked and hungry. What good was everything that you just said? What good is it for you to say you believe God could provide for him if you're ignoring the biblical commands for you to do it? If you're ignoring the biblical commands for you to step out and help your brethren live as, the, as pertaining to their immediate needs. If we say we care about the souls of men, but we don't try to win souls, our faith in that area is empty. If we say we trust God with our money, but in every instance of testing we run to anything and everything other than God to provide, our faith in that claim, in that area, is empty. If we say that we love somebody, but we don't act in their best interest, or that I love God, but I'm not obeying God, then my faith in that area is empty. And we're tempted oftentimes to make faith an all-or-nothing proposition. It's as if we either have faith or we don't have faith. We have faith in everything or we have faith in nothing. But it really doesn't work that way, right? Saving faith is rooted exclusively in our willingness to act upon the truth claims that Jesus Christ is God, that He died on the cross, rose again, and offers salvation freely to all men. And when I say act, of course, we're not talking about a work in the sense of earning our way to, to salvation, but rather acting in that we are turning from our dead works and putting our faith in God. You want to call that a work, you know, people claim semantics and such, but that's not the biblical definition of a work. The biblical definition of a work is something that you're doing with the perception of earning your way to heaven. And certainly there are no works that can get us to heaven. But saving faith is rooted in that reality. It is rooted in the, um, the act of placing our full faith and trust in the truth claims of Jesus Christ. Now, following saving faith, the rest of a believer's life is focused upon increasing our faith in various areas of life and practice. Increasing our faith when it comes to being willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Increasing our faith concerning loving one another. Increasing our faith concerning obedience to the commands of God. Increasing our faith when it concerns money and God's provision for us and our um, desire and ability to give to the needs of others. Increasing our faith when it comes to evangelism. Learning how to be bold in our witness for Jesus Christ. All of these are areas, are, are areas of faith. We could probably spend several minutes discussing many other areas of personal faith that we as believers must learn how to exercise in our lives, that we must grow to the point where we're willing to put our faith in, in God in certain areas, to give up certain areas of uh, control in our lives in order that Christ can fully live in us. And some of us are doing well in certain areas while at the same time doing poorly in others. So as James continues in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says this, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, 
being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. The only way to prove our faith is to act on it. Faith is not about what we know. Faith is about what we do with what we know. We know that Jesus is coming again. But do we have faith that Jesus is coming again? To know that Jesus is coming again is for me to assent that what the Bible says is true. To have faith that Jesus Christ is coming again is to recognize that time is shortened to get busy doing the work of the Father. The greater my faith in the promises of God as far as His sure return, the greater my compulsion will be to live like He's coming soon. We know that the Bible is true, but do we have faith that the Bible is true? It's one thing to say, I believe the Bible is true when the Bible speaks of um, putting aside anger and clamor and evil speaking and fornication and all of these areas of, of sin in our lives. It's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to have faith in it, which compels us to remove it from our lives because we truly believe that what the Bible says is true. If we believed it, then we would act on it. If we had faith, then it would happen. We know that God sees everything we do. We know that God hears everything we say. But do we have faith that He sees everything we do? That He hears everything we say? We know it from the Word of God, but our knowledge doesn't become faith until our knowledge of Jesus' sure return compels us to tell others. Our knowledge doesn't become faith until our belief in the Bible compels us to obey it. And our knowledge doesn't become faith until our understanding that God sees everything changes what we do when we believe no one's watching. That is when we actually and truly exercise faith. Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because your faith groweth exceedingly. That word literally means to increase above the ordinary. Paul says, I see in you an increase that is beyond that which I normally see, even in a believer. Your faith has grown. And notice even here, we see Paul speaking of the idea of faith having to grow. None of us has arrived. We've all experienced, at least everyone in this room, uh, has experienced the reality of placing uh, of our faith coming to the point where we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. But we are all at different levels of the journey of faith as far as trusting Him for our daily lives. And Paul was bound to rejoice because when he looked at the Thessalonian church, he said, here is a church whose faith has grown exceedingly whose faith is above that which I could have possibly expected, whose lives are being a living reflection of what we taught them in the text when we were with them. And so he and Silvanus and testimony feel, or T- Timothy excuse me, feel bound to give God great thanks because of their testimony. First of all, because their faith had increased. Now, the faith Paul speaks of here, as we'll see in verse 4, is directly related to their actions and reactions as it concerns physical suffering and persecution. That when they had every reason to collapse as a church, 
every reason to turn tail and run as a church, every reason to deny Christ, every reason to ignore the Scriptures because they were being beaten and imprisoned. And if we um, take the implication of the text um, properly in First Thessalonians, even killed for what they believed. But instead, they held fast to the truth. Their belief acted itself out in faith. Their actions confirmed what they believe. And it was still growing. And this was cause for great rejoicing. Because their great and growing faith was not only redounding to the glory of God, but it testified to the churches throughout the world of the greatness of God and encouraged other believers in their faith as well. And this is what it means to have a good testimony. The source of a good testimony is faith. Your faith, the action that is brought about through your knowledge and belief, testifies of the truth of God's word to others and compels them to act in response. This is what it means to have a good testimony. The second phrase here is not necessarily intended to be contrasted with their growing faith or mention a different element of their growing faith, but rather simply one of the evidences of their growing faith. He says that their faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Paul says that as a part of their growing faith, he is seeing particularly that their love toward one another is abounding. Literally, that word meaning to increase or to make more. That as they suffer deeper persecution, it wasn't splitting them apart. It wasn't causing contention. They weren't fighting and bickering one another. They were a unified whole and they were expressing love one toward another. What, what was the expression of this love here? We don't really know. Perhaps it was in solidarity with James's example, perhaps it was that there were people in the Thessalonican church who were losing jobs, losing homes, losing family because of the persecution. And maybe as Paul heard about this church, he heard about other believers who were selling things that they had to provide for the needs of others. He heard about others in the church who were taking people in in their times of need. He heard about true sacrifices on behalf of one another in order to build one another up, in order to support one another in the faith in order to help one another materially and physically. Perhaps that was the love that was abounding one toward another. We don't exactly know what it was, but Paul says, your faith is growing exceedingly and we hear of the fantastic love that you have one toward another. And Paul speaks of true love here, the kind of love that we see defined in 1 Corinthians 13, the kind of love that we would call selfless love, the kind of love that thinks of others first, completely apart from my own personal advantage. They were literally pouring themselves out for one another. And in doing so, they were exercising faith. Jesus Christ says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. We looked this morning in Sunday school about the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And the second like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul told um, several times in, in the epistles to love one another. And he said, especially them that are of the household of faith. 
And so we see them living out through practical action what they knew they ought to do. And Paul says, that's faith. That's a testimony. That's what the world will respond to. That's what is encouraging the churches around you. That you're not just saying that this is what you do. You're not just saying this is what we believe. Others can look at you and say, I know what they believe. I know what they preach because it's written all over their actions. People saw or people heard about the church loving one another in the midst of cruel sufferings and they said, these people have something real. And that's a great testimony. The other churches heard about the suffering of the church and they said, wow, if they can suffer in the midst of their persecution, I can too. And that is a great testimony. And so through their growing faith exhibited through their abundant charity one toward another, they found themselves with a testimony of the Gospel to the churches around the known world and even to them the unbelievers in Thessalonica. And Paul tells them as much in verse 4. He says, So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. The source of their faith, excuse me, the source of their great testimony was their faith. The result of their great testimony, the result of their faith, of their belief in action, was that Paul and Silvanus and, and, and Timotheus, I keep wanting to call him testimony, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus would go into other churches and they would say, do you want to know what it means to love God and love the brethren? Look at the church of Thessalonica. He says that we are glorying in you because in the midst of your persecutions and in the midst of the tribulations that you're enduring, you are showing patience and faith. Endurance in your faith. And Paul uses a very direct word here. Glory in relation to how they speak of this church and the other churches. Literally, Paul and his companions bragged about this church to the other churches that they visited. And the idea of bragging or boasting, we often think of it as a negative thing tied into pride. But that's not always the case. There's a proper time to, we might say, glory in others. There's a proper time to glory in others. To elevate others for the purpose of helping others see how to live or to draw attention to the glory of God is not a bad thing. This past Sunday, uh, we had testimonies of what the Lord has done through Legacy Baptist Church. We weren't trying to draw attention to how good our church is by doing those testimonies. And it was certainly not my intention, and I pray that it didn't come across this way, that I wanted people to um, glorify me uh, through those testimonies. I was a little concerned I almost didn't do testimonies because the church right now, because we're so small, is so closely linked to my ministry and I didn't want the testimony time to sound self-serving. But... By, doing, by, by having that time of testimony, we as a church were able to glorify God for what He has done in each individual life, bringing us together as a church, and to see how this ministry has impacted all of us together. And in doing so, in a manner of speaking, we could say that we were glorying in the church. 
We were glorying in what God has done in this church, but not for the purpose of becoming prideful, but for the purpose of glorifying God through what has happened here. And that's not wrong. So Paul boasted in the church, not with the intent of getting people to think that the church was something special, but demonstrating that the faith which they were exercising in the gospel was something special. You see the difference? Not saying these people are something special, but their faith is something special. It's not that they're a special type of Christian that's better than you, but it's that their faith is what it ought to be. It was worthy of emulation. Imagine the encouragement for these believers to be reminded that their faith was not just pleasing God, but their faith had the capacity to encourage the faith of others as well. Perhaps thousands of people would be encouraged by their purpose and determination to live out their love for God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We spoke in our message this morning um, that we should not put ourselves in a position where through our actions or our words we are encouraging rebellion. And as we thought about this, we mentioned that uh, what we do as leaders, whether it's parents or ministers or mentors or, or whatever the capacity we might be in, uh, even if we don't see ourselves as a leader, even if we're just a believer in an unbelieving environment where, where we, we might not necessarily be the boss or the leader, but what we are is a light in darkness. And in all of these different scenarios, we have the capacity through our faith, through our actions, to either lead people unto a better understanding of God or to hurt people's understanding of God, to lead them into uh, conviction over their sin or into some sort of justification for their sin. And this is the same concept that the church of Thessalonica was a testimony that would be able to lead others through their faith into faith in these other churches. And we can have that privilege as well. As individuals, as families, and as a church, we can be an example of faith to an unbelieving world and a beacon of faithfulness to other believers. But it means asking ourselves some questions. And it means being honest with ourselves in their answers. The reality of Christian growth is deeply dependent upon honestly looking at ourselves in light of the Scriptures, honestly considering our motives and our intentions and coming to honest conclusions about where we stand. We can fool others, can't we? Even in our testimony, we can fool others. I can convince you of things that I am not. You can convince me of things that you are not. You can convince me that your faith is greater than it is. You can convince me that you're walking with the Lord when you're not. You can convince me of these things because we know how. I can convince you that I'm walking with the Lord when I'm not. I can convince you that my faith is greater than what it is because I know how to look the part. But the only way we ever get anywhere in our Christian walk is when we're honest with ourselves and with, our, with God. Playing the game, playing a part, is it might help us feel better about ourselves when we come to church. It might help us have some sort of superiority complex over others, but it's not going to mean anything 
profitable on the day that we stand before God. And what it's really going to mean more than anything is stunted growth. When we're confronted with our own sinfulness as believers, we can go in one of two directions. We can either recognize that, humble ourselves before it, own up to it, and seek to change it, or we can deny it and we can start living a life of hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we're not, pretending to have uh, things taken care of and live a life of faith when we're not. And in doing so, not only are we, of course, playing the fool and the hypocrite, but we are stunting our own spiritual growth. For to whatever degree we are living in hypocrisy, trying to look like something we're not, we are not able to truly work on the things that are wrong because we're too busy trying to look like we don't have any problems to begin with. And so we need to be honest with ourselves if we're going to grow. We can go through life pretending to be something that we're not, and we can fool others, but we can't fool God. And so Paul gives us some advice in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.31 in regard to this. This is within the context of the Lord's Supper, and he says, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we go through the process of searching our own hearts, of looking for sin, of being receptive to the Holy Spirit's conviction, of recognizing the things that are wrong into our lives, and of purposefully repenting of those sins, and, and uh, going through the process of submitting those things to God, replacing the, the sin with virtue, and beginning to work these things out of our lives, the Scriptures tell us that in doing so, we save ourselves the trouble of having to go through the, conv- the chastening hand of the Lord. That if we would correct ourselves, then God does not have to correct us. Perhaps we as parents understand this idea. That uh, there are times where our children need to be corrected. And then there are times where our children, over time, and as they begin to exhibit maturity, do something wrong and they correct it themselves. They get themselves right. They come and they confess it to you. Um, they, they realign themselves with your standard. They stop doing what was wrong and they start doing what was right. Maybe even sometimes you never even realized they did something wrong because they were going to or they started doing something wrong and they said, no, I can't do this. And they got it right and they realigned and they moved on and they made the right decision. And in them realigning themselves with you, you don't have to go through the process of trying to break their will in that area because they have submitted their will to you. Now, that doesn't mean there's not necessarily consequences, right? When they come to you and say, I did wrong, will you forgive me? You say, well, yes, of course I forgive you. And there may still be consequences. Uh, you can't do this for a little while or, or whatever the case may be until you earn back that trust. But at the same time, what rejoicing in the heart of the parent that they didn't have to <laughs> coax the children into confession, that they had a tender enough spirit to come to them and confess. In the same way, Paul says that when God places His thumb on an area of our lives where we are not what we should be, that's conviction, if we would judge ourselves, then we should not be judged. If we recognize our wrong and acknowledge our wrong and repent of our wrong and get busy learning how to do what's right, then God does not have to chasten us back to Himself. On the other hand, notice what the next verse says in 1 Corinthians 11. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. When we don't judge ourselves and God has to judge us, that judgment in a believer's life comes in the form of 
chastening. And the purpose of divine chastening is so that we would be compelled back to obedience rather than persisting in the sin of the world and end up in the consequences of the sin of the world. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, we referenced it in Sunday school this morning, the scriptures tell us this, ye have not forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Uh, quoting from Proverbs there. He says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he of whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. The idea there being you are illegitimate. You are not a legitimate child of God if you do not go through chastening when you are living in unrepentant sin. No one wants to be chastened when we are obstinate in our wrongdoing. But if you are obstinate in your wrongdoing and you do not repent, and you're not under the chastening hand of the Lord, you'd better be concerned as to whether or not you're a son of God. Because whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And if you're a child of God through believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, then the, then the love of the Lord has been poured out upon you in the most real way possible. So, all of that to kind of bring us back to this idea that we need to be honest with ourselves. When we think about our testimony before the world, We need to be honest. Are we living a right testimony? And the question that we ask first is this. In what areas do we have the opportunity to exercise faith? You know, not everyone gets the same opportunities to exercise faith. We're in a generation where we may have more opportunities to do so than our parents. But we certainly don't have some of the opportunities that others have. And this is not a bad thing. To be frank with you, I'm not all that excited about having the opportunity to exercise my faith in the way that the Christians in the Middle East are having the opportunity to exercise their faith right now. Their homes are being burnt to the ground. Their churches are being burnt with them in them. They're being beheaded for their faith. They're losing their families. They're losing their lives. And they have an opportunity to exercise in a faith that you and I really don't have. We could try to conjure up the opportunity, but that would be silly. And so they have an opportunity there to, to, to exercise faith. And that's not necessarily an opportunity that we should be looking for. What we should be looking for is opportunities in our lives to exercise faith. Christians in Ireland right now are being asked to exercise their faith in the midst of being the first nation in the world to alter their constitution in order to allow for sodomite marriage. They're going through something that will be coming here, but it's not here yet. They're going through something that, that will be coming uh, to, to the United States. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court will be ruling on it very soon as far as a portion of this idea and things could change, change dramatically for churches uh, with the fallout from that decision. But that's their battle. That's their faith in Ireland right now. That's the battle they have to fight. My question for us this evening is what battles do you need to fight? Where does your faith need to be exhibited? What situations are you in where your faith can be manifested in your phase of life where God 
has you today. Maybe, young person, God is asking you to exercise your faith when you're around your friends or when nobody else is around and you have the freedom to do what you want. Will you exercise your faith in the reality that God sees and God knows? Will you exercise your faith in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, which tells us that if we honor our father and our mother, that it will be the first commandment with promise, the promise of success in life. Maybe God is asking you to exercise your faith when you are at work and those people want you to do something that's against policy or they're asking you to participate in something that is against God's Word. Maybe God is asking you to exercise faith when you're around unbelieving family, not changing your routines to accommodate their unbelief. Many different ways that we can exercise our faith as individuals and as a family. What about as a church? We live in a city where the gospel is up for debate. Where probably better than half of the churches in Buffalo don't even believe the gospel according to God's Word. We live in a city where the term Christian does not necessarily have anything to do with actually following the teachings of Christ. What opportunities do we have as a church to exercise faith? To be a testimony among unbelievers. And that leads us to the second question. What areas of our lives and of our ministries are we not really exercising faith? What areas could you be or are you and where are you not doing a good job? Where do we fall short? Is it interacting with your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, both immediate and extended? Is it interacting with the church? How about our church? What areas of our church are we not, just not doing well at being a good testimony in this community? What areas of our church have we shied away or been willing to say, yeah, yeah, I kind of believe that, but unwilling to stand on it? What areas might be coming up in the future? We talked about the, the sodomite um, controversy that is brewing. Other cultural issues that might be coming. What will happen on the day where these things hit your doorstep? Are you actually living in a manner consistent with the Word of God? Is your faith, your belief in action being reflected so that when somebody does come up and question you, when somebody does challenge you, when somebody does give you an ultimatum, lose your job or do this, lose your friends or go along with this, Where will your testimony be? See, a great testimony is founded upon faith. Faith is the outworking of what you know and believe with all your heart to be true. So how are we doing at faith this evening? If we can bring our, put our full faith and trust in the Word of God so that we are living out the expectations of God's Word in our lives, then, as we see the example in Second Thessalonians, we as individuals, we as families, we as a church, will have a great testimony. Let's close in prayer.